Hello, hello, and welcome to Review 2. This week we're Review 2-ing How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. Oh, crumbs! Very, very drunk. Big bombastic songs. This is a return to some classic U2, dressed as a matador with a Spanish guitar. I think it's a forgotten masterpiece, actually. So you join us once again for another episode of Review 2. We are now firmly into the noughties, and we've got a brand new red and black album to listen to. Tyler, what's the band been up to since the release of All You Can't Leave Behind? Well, first of all, this is a massive period of time to cover. It's nearly five years, uh, mm. the the distance between All That You Can't Leave Behind and How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. And so it begins. So we find ourselves in March 2001. The Elevation Tour lifts off, a tour that did away with the sensory overload that U2 incorporated in the 1990s shows. Instead of stadiums, U2 filled smaller-scale arenas Shows with a heart-shaped stage that surrounded some of the audience. On August the 21st, 2001, Bono's father, Bob, passes away after a long battle with cancer. On September the 1st, U2 headline Slain Castle, an emotionally charged show. Ten days later, the 9-11 terrorist attacks happen in New York City at the World Trade Center. U2 kick off 2002 with a performance at the Super Bowl a show in which they commemorate the victims of the 9-11 tragedy. In October, U2 release Electrical Storm. In January 2003, they released The Hands That Built America, the soundtrack for the Martin Scorsese film Gangs of New York. In February 2004 now, after months in the studio, U2 decide that they need help with the next record, so they contact three men with a proven track record of aiding the band achieve dizzying heights Steve Lillywhite, Brian Eno, and Danny Lamois. The Dream Team. So initially, the band had worked with Chris Thomas to uh, produce the album, and this was a purposeful choice to go in a much more rocky direction. The band had said um, that later on they regretted kind of, you know, the amount of stress and hard work they put Chris Thomas through because, I mean, they're such an individual band to work with. And they are a band where, you know, they just grind things out and grind things out and they have a very particular way of working. So, amongst other people, they contacted old Steve Lillywhite to come back in. Not that he's old, but that they worked with him previously. Um, I was excited when I heard about all the build-up to this. Obviously, we're now in the era that Tyler and I are really dedicated U2 fans and we're looking out for news, we're excited, we're anticipating this album. And it's annoying that we get into them precisely at the era where they start stretching out the release periods between albums. I was excited to hear that Edge had been discovering new Rocky sounds, that this was meant to be their return to a rock guitar album, you know. And this was all the rage, really. At the moment, um, or rather at that particular moment, there were a lot of um, revival garage bands around. So the Hives, the Strokes, the Vines, it had all really become a lot about riffs and guitar music back in the charts and firmly there. And it was, to be honest, I thought it was a bit of a golden era, really, for, for rock music. There were, yeah, there was a lot of new acts as well. For example, The Killers and, and Coldplay, um, uh, the Arctic Monkeys. Hmm. Uh, the Kaiser Chiefs were really big in France, Ferdinand, around that same time. So it was one of those bands that stands out to me as not really fitting in the category um, of, of, of great new bands. 
And I'll let people just decide at home which one they think that might be. I don't know which one you mean either, but... Oh, okay, well... But it was certainly all very big bands around that time. And I think Oasis also had a, an album um, around that time as well, which was very well received. Um, so, yeah, a different era in U2. Uh, you now have an, an iPod. And uh, this is the new musical uh, device. It's gone past the CD now. We're now on MP3s uh, and digital audio. Um, that's a huge change. And U2, of course teamed up with Apple to launch this album and launched an, an iPod to go with it. Yeah, a dedicated iPod, red and black, all the signatures on the back and the catalogue preloaded onto it. Now, this is certainly... Why is that amusing? Uh, because um, a few years later, you 2 would give them one album on an iPhone and yeah. it caused uproar and they sold a, an, an, an iPhone with the whole back catalogue. Very true. I mean, you could definitely do um, a good solid uh, essay on U2 and their relationship with Apple and that change that's occurring. I mean, just in terms of economics, the fact that U2 had to give away or felt they had to give away the album to be heard, whereas back in 2005, you could buy a special edition of this album. It sold a lot of copies um, and you could buy for a quite, you know, a large price, a considerable price, you know, I'm not saying it's unreasonable, but a large price, you could get this specially made iPod. So, yeah, fascinating subject. But this is where we've really got into the backlash against you starting. I think uh, against you two kicking off at a popular level. Certainly within my friendship group at the time, um, I had, had friends who were real fans, and I had a lot of friends that just hated you two. And you two, being my favourite band at that time, made for a lot of uncomfortable conversations. Was it the same for you? Um, not really, not for this album, not yet. Anyway, uh, uh -huh. because I, I think people who had older brothers or fathers who were particularly into music uh, or, or read a certain magazine, you know, th then they were bred to hate U2 because U2 weren't the cool band. Hmm. Um, but this was my first U2 album as a U2 fan. Uh, this is the first first bits of new material that that, that I was given. And I'm have very very strong memories of this time frame uh which i can't i can't say for any of the other reviews we've done you know it's it's been conjecture and and um reading up and researching so this, i didn't have to do a lot of research because i'd li i'd lived through this time as a u2 fan mm. but i thought particularly in high school that was where i was when this album came out this album was really well received there was there was people um coming up to me and said you you know I, I liked you too and were you asking me which other albums they should they should buy not that I was uh, I, I should have been allowed to that dalliance with uh, people's pocket money at that at that point but it was it was an interesting time and I think generally this album was very well received particularly around the, you know 14 15 year olds I mean it went to went to number one so it was received well commercially speaking and you two were really ubiquitous because of those iPhone ads and, to a lesser extent, the uh, Vertigo music video. It was when they were investing a lot of time in music videos. But I still think there was definitely... Maybe it was because I was hanging out with a little bit of an older set who were into, quote-unquote, cooler music. That's where the backlash came from. And also, this is the time where Bono is getting much more personally involved in campaigns um, such as Drop the Debt and... Um, charities in Africa, that kind of thing. Now, obviously, that's good in a lot of ways, but purely for the band's reputation, it didn't set rock and roll image, 
and it makes complications when the band has become, as I said last episode, much more Bono-centric, really. Yeah, it's difficult when every time you hear about a band, it's not the music you're hearing about. You're hearing about mm. um, how they're raising money or you know trying to persuade you to give money to certain you know causes, mm. uh, which generally rubs people up the wrong way, because mm. you know you have millionaires trying to tell you to donate what you can, and this, there's always that question: Well, how much are you donating? Yeah, you which know? is obviously which is, a, a simplistic point. Yeah, but I can see how it does annoy people. Um, so yeah, the the focus of the focus isn't on the music for you two around around this time. Basically, every time you hear about Bono, it's it's a different charity, or it's, he's with Nelson Mandela, or George mm. W. Bush, or you know Tony Blair and, and world leaders, and it's it's not what music fans are into. It's not what you go to you two for. And you get a sense that this is not just something that people who have commonly been, you know, or would expectedly be U2 detractors are saying now, you also get, and this is a key shift, a sense within the actual band that there is discomfort with how much Bono is doing and that the album's not getting made. Yeah. There's not been enough work put in on the, you know, on that side perhaps. And maybe this is something that we can't locate starting just here. Maybe it's something that grows throughout the end of the noughties. But it becomes a thing that's just not ever been present in in the U2 uh, story. I think this is the longest gap between albums. Between... I think that's true up until now. Yeah, no. I, I mean, they've come close, but yeah. I think this is the long this is the longest gap between albums. Yeah, and this is maybe that increasing tension that's going on the band that they feel they have to make um albums as events and that it has to be their best album and I mean, that's particularly pertinent for this album because Bono was saying a lot that this was U2's first album or this is their first rock album. You know, it's a return to that. Now, whether people buy that narrative or not, it's interesting. But I guess the only way to find out, Tyler... Is to go track by track. So, from innocence to experience, welcome to the city of blinding lights as we review two, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. Hello, hello. It's not only the catchphrase to a well-loved podcast, it's also, Tyler, a lyric that appears, and I don't know if you were aware of this, on an earlier U2 song called Stories for Boys. I don't know if you ever were aware of that fact, but it's, it's an interesting little nugget that I thought I'd bring out. Uh, yeah. What do you I think? think you're trying to bait me into an argument. Yes, I am. That's exactly what I'm trying yep. to do. Uh, yes, I was aware. You, however, were not aware. Because I keep mentioning it every time I uh, talk about this song. Yep. <laughs> um, you seem to forget about it and then remember it. Because you knew about it in 2005 when we saw them live. Yeah. And then in 2016, when we sat down to do this podcast, you didn't know about it. Well, maybe I just can't, you know, I just can't keep a track on things. Um, but do you know, Tyler, that the very first bit of this song, the Hello, Hello, is actually from a song called Stories for Boys? Johnny, I think you may be suffering from a touch of vertigo. Possibly so. I do feel a bit dizzy. Um, right. Anyway, let's get into this. Yep. These podcasts are long enough without our ridiculous stuff. <laughs> so, Vertigo, uh, a big bombastic start, um, the kind of track that you two like to start with, an accessible rock track. Do you agree with that assessment? Um, yes. It, well, it's definitely bombastic. And um, and accessible. 
very accessible, which is proved by the fact of its chart performance, um, number one. But I'm not sure it's... This isn't my favourite start to the album, and we probably shouldn't be getting into track listings right away, but I would not put this at the first song on the album. Um, to me, this is part two in a saga of big, dumb, riff-based rock songs, okay? Now, I say that with with no kind of pejorative sense. I think it's good to have a big, dumb rock song. In the live setting, this was absolutely electric to hear. Um, what was part one? Part one was Elevation. Sorry, that's, that's a good right, point to bring okay. up. So, yeah, so in terms of the noughties, I think that this is the evolution from Elevation. Well, I think Elevation was better. I think they were trying to create th- that kind of Elevation song, um, just a big poppy rock song that would you know, sound great live and, and kick off an album. I know Elevation didn't actually kick off All That You Can't Leave Behind, but I don't think they did it. I don't think they managed to do it. So what is it about this that makes it not as good as Elevation, focusing on Vertigo? I think it's that they were trying to make it a pop track. Well, that's interesting because the evolution of the song is obviously it begin. it began as Native Son, which was a much more serious song in terms of its content. And then... Well, there's, there's they elements the on it on uh, is it Ali, Alex descends into a into hell for a bottle of milk? Yeah, that that, um, that particular um, harmonic kind of side from the Acton Baby days. I'm not yeah. sure which single off the top of my head. Um, so yeah, so the, it's weird that that little kind of element has been hanging around for so long, and then it appears on this track. The ding, do ding, you know, a similar riff, um, and then it became uh, Native Son, and they. Apparently Bono wasn't 100% happy with singing it. When they did rehearsals, everyone noticed that Bono was thinking, okay, when I skip forward mentally to the idea of singing this in front of how many people in an arena or in a stadium, I'm not feeling this. So they went for Vertigo. Um, and I think it works as in this in this sense. It, it's, it's produced to do a job, and it, I suppose it does that job. Um Bono says about this song, in the case of Vertigo, I was thinking about this awful nightclub we've all been to. You're supposed to be having a great time and everyone's extra- and everything's extraordinary around you. The drinks are the price of buying a bar uh, in a third world country. You're just looking around and you see big fat capitalism at the top of its mountain just about to topple. It's that woozy sick feeling of realising that here we are, drinking, eating, polluting, robbing ourselves to death. And in the middle of the club, there's this girl. She has crimson nails. I don't even know if she's beautiful. It doesn't matter. But she she has a cross around her neck. And the character in this stirs at the cross just to steady himself. Okay, fair enough. Um, I mean, yeah, I get, I get all that from the song, as, you know, as in it's applicable. Um yeah, I, I, most of that is blatant in the lyrics. To be honest, yeah, yeah, it's literally telling that story. Um, and Say th- what you see, Bono. And I think um, old Roy coming into the studio um, from beyond the grave. No, he's still alive. Oh dear, he lives, <laughs> he lives in Lytham St Anne's near Blackpool. Okay, um, so and his address is <laughs> right. Let's not go too far down that route. Um, okay, and I get the wooziness from the song because of that riff that Edge has got, you know, it just keeps repeating and turning round and round. Um, So I do get that sense, as Bono has said, you know, in other interviews, that this is about a song where you're meant to be having the time of your life, but you want to kill yourself. You know, you're in that setting, and I think everyone's been in a club like this, um, 
to vote me in every time I go to a club where the music is pounding and you just think, God, I want to be anywhere else than this. And everyone else is having this um, great time, or so it might seem. Do you um, remember last episode when you were telling everybody how much of a party animal you were? Yes, well, I've aged That facade then. fell quite, quite quickly. quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we couldn't talk about this song, though, without talking about the elephant in the room, which is that all these guitar bands were coming out, all these garage rock bands, I'm putting garage in inverted commas, um, like The Strokes, like The Hives, and then another band, which was big at the time, The Vines, and they had a song called Get Free. And Vertigo repeatedly draws criticism for the fact that um, the riff sounds quite similar to the Get Free riff. You're not aware of this, Tyler? I'm not aware of that. Okay, so have a look online, see what you think, um, and get in touch if you think it's a rip-off. I don't personally think it is. I think riffs are... I mean, there's so many riffs that are so similar and they work well in different contexts. It, it really doesn't matter. I mean, you know, classic example, Boston and Nirvana. Well, this was the first the first song released while I'd been a U2 fan. Um, strange time in my life and I'm kind of agonising over the memories of that because I think I wanted to be perceived as more mature than I was and I suppose in my head that I felt like I, you know, I, was, I was more mature. Um, this song was a hit, and the fact that the fact that it was a hit, and the fact that I was interested in something that at the time was very popular, gave me a personal sense of, of relevance in the anonymous haze of high school. So it's quite an important track in my mm. life, but um, I don't know if any U two song has aged as badly as this one has. <laughs> it's. I, I'm struggling to find any anything I enjoy about this track now. Oh, I find a lot to enjoy, but I just think that there are embarrassing moments, like Bono saying, yeah, 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 at the end, which South Park so brilliantly parodied. You know, so Bono would just enter the room and would just be shouting, yeah, 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 all the time. Do you remember when he was on the um, Jonathan oh, Ross show no, and he yeah. head butts the camera? Oh, we're back to Bono, the embarrassing dad. That's a 45-year-old man headbutting a uh, television camera. Well, what did the camera say about Bono? You know, I mean, we don't know what, what <laughs> how it insulted him. I've not heard the camera's side of the story. No, that's true. Miracle Drug. This is a song which emerged from the story of someone called Christopher Nolan, who had cerebral palsy and couldn't basically move any any part of his body. And a certain type of drug that he was given allowed him to move his head enough so that he was able to access, you know, kind of word processing and write poetry. And from everyone saying, or, you know, medical opinion being, you know, quite well-informed medical opinion being of the opinion that he couldn't actually move or, or write, all of this poetry came forth from him. And apparently his mother had always known from looking in his eyes and things like that, that he did have so much inside of him to give. So that's the context for the song. I'm sorry if I've skipped over it a little bit quickly, um, but but obviously it takes on lots of different meanings, particularly in uh, the context of getting particular types of medicines out to places where uh, Bono was working with various charities. It's it's an interesting song in that sense, but Tyler, do you, do you like the song in terms of its actual sound? Uh, I, I really do. Um, I think it's a really good... Sometimes when you write a tribute to somebody, it can be a bit sentimental and a bit... Um, soppy yeah uh, and actually they end, they end up not being very good tributes at all because um, 
Mm. A bad song is a bad song. So I think this is really, uh, this, I think this is a really good song. I'm always shocked that it's number two. For some reason, I, I imagine this al- this track being th- further back in the album. Uh, and I, I always think that sometimes you can't make it on your own is, is number two. Mm. Um, but no, it's it's a great song. It's 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 a fun song as well. Um, maybe I don't think that's an inappropriate use of the word fun either. What bit is fun to you? Um, it it sounds fun. It sounds it sounds like a good uh, rock ballad. I think I've called it a sentimental rock ballad. But it's fun and it's upbeat. It's not. It there's hope in the. Yeah, it's definitely. Oh, it's optimistic. It's not. It's not depressing. And I think that's always a much more fitting tribute. I mean, Christopher Nolan went on to become a very successful Irish writer. Uh, I mean, he was always Irish, um, but it's it's great. It's it's good to it's good to hear. It's good to sing. It's good to play. And it, it's it was great to hear live. And it I hear on the um, Innocence and Experience tour. Uh, the night we went, they played City of Blinding Lights, hmm. but they did in. Um, the one, yeah, they alternated. One night they would play City Blinding Lights, and one night they'd play Miracle Drug. I'm actually pretty sad that I didn't get to hear Miracle Drug again because I think it's a really good track, and I think I would have been genuinely surprised to hear them play that. I think City Blinding Lights because it's a single is a little bit more generic. Yeah, it would have been interesting. Uh, although we had heard it previously on um, when we'd actually gone to the Vertigo tour, when we were lucky enough to actually get into the uh, the ellipse, as it was called, um, and I was at that time wearing a cast on my leg. Um, because I was at the, the very latest uh, later stage of a broken leg. Um, so, again, I looked like a party animal dancing to you 2 with a stupid cast on my leg. Back to the song, I think Larry and Adam actually have really good um, meaty rhythm parts to this. Um, and they really balance out what Edge is doing. He's using quite delicate work, apart from, obviously, the bits in the... Adam um, is insane on this record. He's... He's re- he's turned up the bass has turned up really high on most songs on on the album. Yeah, I mean he's 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 great on this song. He's great on Vertigo. Obviously, we'll we'll highlight the different areas as we go on. There is one song where I think Adam is terrible on this on this um on this actual. Why album. do I get the feeling that I've said I really like that in my notes? <laughs> um, well, we'll always butt head on uh, who's best out of Adam and Edge, I guess. Um, I come to this song for the middle section um, because I think there is that kind of the breakdown where the, the I think it's actually the whole band chanting, you know, the oh yeah, is that kind of bit. I think even Larry gets involved with that. Certainly live, I think I've seen him get, getting involved with this. And then we go to um, you know, that soaring kind of solo from Edge, and then Edge gets a little vocal break, which, as we know, I always I always enjoy when Edge gets a bit of time in the spotlight, and then Bono comes back in. So it's it's an excellent song. My question to you though is, do you like the line? Freedom has a scent like the top of a baby's head because it has drawn a lot of flack. Like the top of a newborn baby's head. Yes, a newborn baby's head. Sorry, not just any old baby. It has to be fresh. I don't like the smell of babies, to be honest. Uh, I'm always rather concerned about where that baby has just been. Um, And I can't seem to take my mind away from that fact when someone hands me this. They don't mean it's literally glistening with mother's innards. I I am not the most paternal person in the world. and someone handing me a, a freshly born baby, a newborn baby, <laughs> is uh, like somebody handing me <laughs> a freshly made poo. That's basically because I'm overly concerned about where it's come from. I'm a, a bit disgusted when I'm feeling when I when I'm holding a baby. 
I thought you were going to say bomb, but you went down that route. Okay. Um, well, that's between you and your therapist, I think. Um, so you're not a fan of the line, which is my actual question. Um, the, the line's fine, but yeah, it it, it doesn't. It, I've never picked it up. Hmm. I'm surprised you heard it, to be honest. <laughs> Track three on how to dismantle an atomic bomb is sometimes you can't make it on your own. A song about. Bono's late father Bob Hewson. Um I love this song um and it's a full band song rather than a quiet acoustic track which I can imagine someone might have thought that would have been a good idea and a nice fitting tribute but with it being a full band song it allows Bono to really use the full power of his voice and pay tribute to his dad who was a, a tenor hmm. in um one of the I don't remember the exact. Um, no, I don't. I don't remember the exact name of the group of tenors or choir that that Bob Hewson and the Edges' father um, hmm. was involved with. But that's the 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 kind of the point is that he yeah he was a tenor and used to conduct uh, the radio with you know with you know like opera sticks and Bono got this uh, gift of opera from his dad and that love of opera and the song to me is all about communication it's all about being able to possibly sing things to his dad who's now dead which he could never properly articulate in words bono's um father had a reputation as being quite um emotionally reserved hmm. i think would be the the right way to put it so bono was left uh with a, a feeling of having so much more to still say to him uh, and in the video, right at the very beginning, there is uh, just a a shot of a note that Bono had written that says, "I wish I'd known him better." And and that's pretty much you know what the song is all about. It's it's, it's basically his son um, pouring his heart out and asking uh, his dad to open up to him and and um, be a friend, not just you know a father figure. Uh, I think they were close, but you know it was a it was a old school tough kind of. Dignified, close rather than a, um, you know, a, an emotional embrace. Well, I think it's perhaps a generational thing as well. I mean, um, he's talking about the fact that they don't talk and that he doesn't need to hear him say things. So there is some kind of communication there. But I think there's two generations or two different mindsets. It's the um, kind of the old school where you're taught to be, you know, kind of reserved about things and not really, not really emote and discuss issues. And then there's possibly Bono's generation or even the one after him where you are encouraged to, you know, discuss things and to emote and express all that. And it's that kind of the meeting point between between the two of them. And Bono, I think that idea that he's now just being able to sing something and that's the correct way, you know, do you hear me when I sing? It's such a it's such a good motif to hang a song on. And in addition to that, it's got so much heartfelt, you know, kind of honesty behind it. Yeah. Songs like this make me worry about my relationship with U2, actually, um, and about how much U2 songs will mean to me when I've experienced more of life. Yeah. Because I liked this song 10 years ago, but hadn't hadn't experienced anything that it was to be about. And without getting too morbid, those things, those experiences only get closer Yeah, to of course you. they do. It's just back to life. And um, so... It, the song obviously means a lot more to me now, and you know it shows me to uh, take special care of those 
relationships that you know won't always be there, uh, particularly with parents. But it does. If this this song just continues to mean more and more to me, how much is it going to mean in twenty, thirty years? Hmm. There's a lot of power in a song, and I, and I, you can't write a song to to do that. That that's just that's just part of the magic of when it's written and and what it you know what it means to somebody. So yeah, it it kind of makes me scared of how how much power this song is going to have over me in in a, in a few years' time. Well, I was thinking about that because it only gets more and more. Um... Well, I was thinking that, about that because it only becomes more clear as you look in the mirror that you start to look more and more like your father and you see that reflection going back into you. And uh, yeah, so that is something that will only grow and that's, that's a great aspect of the song. Um, Bono says that his voice is the best it's ever been on this track. Now, whether that's a soundbite at the time or it's a way of, again, you know, kind of selling the album and, you know, presenting it in a certain way, do, would you agree with that? Um, I think if if it's the best he's ever sounded, then for some reason my mind is going straight to bad. Mm. Um, the maybe maybe he was happiest with his his voice. This is the happiest. It's quite hard. I think you'll you'll agree, even though you you don't sing, you play guitar. When you record some things, mm. it's very hard for you to be happy with it. I think we talked a little bit about this on the "All That You Can't Leave Behind" episode. Um, it's it's much easier to write to write or produce something for somebody else. It's it's a lot harder to please yourself with something. So maybe he just walked away from from that mm. feeling that he he'd done a really good job and and been happy with with what he'd sung, and that he'd actually honoured the thing that he was setting out to do, which is to literally to sing to his father. So yeah. maybe that is what he was actually expressing. Um. This song was quite difficult in early versions to actually come into being as the song we have now. And it's a really developed song. I think, unlike, say, um, Angels um, from from Pop, as in If God Will Send His Angels, which, as I said in that episode, doesn't actually manage to stand up to that early, you know, kind of quieter song that um, One is or that Stay Far Away So Close is. I mean, I know I'm using kind of weird categories here, but... I don't think it's as good as that. This stands beside the best. It's as good, in my opinion, as Stay or One. But it came together in a really in a lot of different versions. There was kind of an early version which sounded a bit more, say, fifties-ish uh, with augmented chords, which was an interesting direction that they were going down. And then the version that they got initially was called Tough, and that didn't have the falsetto chorus bit. And apparently, this was. A case of Steve Lillywhite hearing the song and saying, "Okay, this is great. There's no chorus, guys." And then Bono just instantly picked up a guitar and wrote that incredible chorus. And it's so strange how a song might arrive in that way and yet feel so complete. And it only begs the question: Why don't you two get on with things a lot quicker than than they have been doing at this point? I think that is a uh, question that fans will continue to only ask more and more yeah. uh, going forward. Um, we wish it weren't the case, but. That's maybe when we get them in the studio, we'll 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 ask them. I'm sure they'd like to hear that question. Demand them to write an album while they're here. Look, mate, you're gonna give me some love and peace, or else. Um, I'm sort of speechless now. I'll start if you like. 
Uh, I love the dirty sound at the beginning of this. It's kind of uh, it's kind of sexy and seductive. <laughs> I got the idea of almost like a Bond theme of uh, sexy silhouettes and uh, that, that kind of imagery came to mind. Uh, Adam is amazing on this track. Uh, the Adam applauder in full force here, and um, I'm, I'm yeah, I was I was really happy with Adam. <laughs> um, Adam is great on this. He's front and center. Yeah, and I like how on um, live performances of this, you can see when he's got his moment to lift his bass and go, boom, boom. Like, you know, it really thuds through the middle of it. I'd love to have more of this. This is actually what I was expecting when all the sound bites were talking about Edge rediscovering the guitar, about them doing something really rocky and trashy and dirty. And I re- I love this song. I wish there was a bit more of this kind of thing on the album. Um, there's a swagger to this, which isn't really... Well, I guess it's present on, on Vertigo, but it's a different kind of feel. It's a different kind of stance from you 2 here. We talked last time um, about a song on All That You Can't Leave Behind called Peace on Earth. Um, I think you weren't very happy with that song. I like the sentiment, the sentiment yeah, but, but not the execution yeah. of the song itself. I think this is what this song you know should have been um it it's asking for religious unity it's got a lot of the, the same the same themes um and it's presented by a, a military rhythm in a way uh and bono seems to incorporate the the televangelist preacher character reminiscent of like the, it's reminiscent of the stones and the beatles and it's quite playful so it's reminiscent of uh 90s u2 um i mean on that on that point Bono said um, in one of the interviews that it's like the fly went to the seminary and became a priest. So I think that's that syncs up exactly with yeah. what you're saying. There. Uh, and I really, I really get all that. And this is one of the best um, dalliances with politics because uh, it's not overtly political. It's uh, it's a peaceful anthem presented as a really great rock song. Yeah, and I think that's uh, it's an old uh, kind of trope that exists within U2's catalogue in terms of them writing something that is sort of not aggressively but forcefully anti-violent you know um, I think and using those military um, themes like Sunday Bloody Sunday and the drumbeat you know to to actually um, take on these sort of issues I really like the middle section where we do get a bit more specific um, I mean it is a, a general call for love and peace um, but when they're talking about, you know, the troops on the ground about to dig in, we're two years into the Iraq war here and things are not going well already. So that's the kind of context. And I think, um, I mean, Bono has spoken about this song um, and said people forget quite quickly what an age of paranoia existed, you know, post 9-11, certainly in the few years after it. So this is... I think is... we'll be reminded very shortly. Well, yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I mean, this is a song which captures that sense of of paranoia, and I, I mean, on a kind of you know aesthetic level, I really like the guitar sound here. The big riff that Edge comes out with, I want more of that on this album, to be honest. Mm. A little bit more darkness and glitz. I mean, there's that kind of. It's really heavy. The, it's mm. really heavy, and like you don't often get that in a U two track. And weirdly, played on an acoustic. Um, an electroacoustic, obviously, uh, live, but just gives such an odd um, sound to this and an odd force to the um, to the song. 
City of Blinding Lights. And I think this should be the first song on the album. And there are reasons three for this. A. It has a long introduction before we actually get to the vocals. Just like Streets. Aussie Roper. Two. It has a nice sort of jangly uh, delayed guitar, which then achieves a big sound in the chorus, like Streets. A bit like Zero but not really. And again, like Streets, we have a driving kind of snare bass drum beat. This should definitely be the start of the album, and I think there were wrangles between Bono and Edge over track listing that existed all the way through the process. So that's my thoughts on the track listing of it. I have got very similar notes. Uh, I It sounds like Actung and Zeropa and Pop and, and the Joshua Tree. I, I did think it sounded a lot like Streets or oh, this is the, the, the song on the album that's that's at least more, most reminiscent of Where the Streets Have No Name. Hmm. There's a, certainly a more retro U2 sound in this track. Um, I can't quite say what it is though. I don't know why, because it, it's it's obviously, it's obviously sounds very modern, and it sounds like it belongs on this album. It doesn't sound like it could have been on an earlier album, but it does ha- it does sound uh, more retro. Um, I think it's just those elements that are quite classically U two. Um, the the you know the you know the kind of the the delayed guitar, Larry going, you know that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, he didn't use his legs, thankfully. Is that Larry arriving now? So we've just uh, seen Larry off at the door. Bid um, him farewell. We bid him farewell and wished him well. Um, but back to City of Blinding Lights. This is a song about the loss of innocence. The first time the band went to London uh, when they were you know, first starting out. And the first time they went to New York after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. I have to say, I don't get that kind of feeling from this song. Well, it's very upbeat, isn't it? I think it's just a it's a seed of the idea, because apparently they went out to Madison Square Garden, saw all the lights, um, you know, go up, and I think that's the... It's just the inspiration for the song. It's not a song about that. It just has an energy. Yeah, I suppose um, that, that idea of being in a, a similar place mm. when so much has changed. Everything feels different. But people are still ready to come together and celebrate music together. Yeah, yeah. All because of you. This is where the album starts to take a bit of a dip for me, I'm Mm -hmm. afraid. It's pretty repetitive. Doesn't have a lot of heart. I can see that it has a certain live appeal, but it doesn't stand up to previous songs on the album for me. No, not at all. I think this is... Um, Sounds I... a bit like The Hives, actually. Oh, that's a. I think that's an insult to The Hives. No, I don't mean that as an insult. It's just got a very... Yeah, it's the riff, isn't it? It's yeah, the it's the riff. riff. Yeah. No, I, I do know what you're saying there. Um, I remember listening to this for the very first time, um, going through the album. Obviously, I'd heard Vertigo before. But it was amazing to be able to, you know, listen to the album for the very first time. And um, sometimes I remember it was the track that really sold me. Love and Peace uh, got me interested. City Blinding Lights was thinking, yes, this is a return to some classic U2. And then this happens. And the start of the song is so interesting because you have that kind of, you know, little guitar pattern that seems um, kind of almost scientific and um, skipping around and delay. 
And then, yeah, this big riff comes in. It's not a bad riff. It's not a great riff. But then the song just, oh, it's awful. Like, it really doesn't achieve anything. The chorus is really bad. It's one of the worst choruses. And it might have been saved, this song, or at least made okay, you know, like a six or seven out of ten if the chorus was good. It's awful. Yeah, it's it's not good. I think it's style over substance. I think they were perhaps writing... Um, to contend with contemporary artists such as the Hives, but um, they really didn't do very well on this track. They've not run out. They've just run out of ideas, it seems. And I mean, um, I don't want to just repeat points that have been made by other people, but I I really can't avoid the point that Scott Orkerman made about this song um, on "You Talking You Too to Me" when he's saying that that second all because of you just seems like a placeholder. It just seems like oh, I don't really know what to put here. You know, it's it's a placeholder and it needs another another draft or putting in the bin and the song is so it's one of those songs where bono is really trying to have his cake and eat it they already did that all the way to the 90s well you've been playing that bono got chunky during the 90s no no like they they were were being big time rock stars and taking the piss out of big time rock stars yeah fair enough but they did that i think successfully and interestingly there um whereas this is bono saying see i can be self-referential i'm i'm calling myself an intellectual tortoise isn't that cool and hip I was thinking, but Bono, just either get on with it and be a rock star and be defiant about it, or stop being a rock star. Yeah, I know which one of those I'd prefer. Um, so I'm just, it just it kind of depresses me. And also that line, you know, he's talking about being born, um, which is referring to the album about the rebirth of you two as a guitar band, and this is our this is our first rock album, that kind of thing. A, I think that's just not a true narrative. And B, he's saying, you know, I want back inside. It's a horrible image, really. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, fans or listeners, uh, do we have fans? List Anoraks, we have Anoraks. Yeah, fans uh, of the band, not fan of, fans of us, I think. Uh, please get in touch if you disagree with us, uh, if you found something you liked in or because of you. We would be very interested to see what it was. A man and a woman. This is one of the more laid-back songs on the album. This is where I think uh, Adam really contributes an excellent bass line. He's back on form after being possibly a bit lazy on the last album. The acoustic version of this song was included on one of the other singles. That is one of the most pointless additions to a single ever, because it's not an acoustic version in the sense that it's live in acoustic, which I'd be very interested to hear, particularly with Adam on an acoustic bass. It's just the same song, from what I can tell, but they've removed the bass, which is one of the best things about it, and not, and maybe some other things. So it's it's pointless. Um, for me, this song is a bit. Uh, some really interesting lyrics in this song, um, but I don't know if you found this. It's quite sonically overpowering, and not in a good way, like Zeropa was. It's just there's a lot going on, and it's hard to like, concentrate on any individual piece. It's yeah, I mean, I've put here Adam Clayton give that give that bassist a male uh, a male <laughs> a medal. <laughs> give him a man. Give that bassist a medal. Okay. Um, but yeah, some some really good songs. Uh, some some really good lyrics. Uh, you can run from love, but if it's really love, it will find you. Mm. Uh, the only pain is to feel nothing at all. Uh, the soul needs beauty for a soulmate. When the soul wants, the soul waits. Why am I finding... I didn't have a problem with the lyrics, but now you're saying them out loud, and it's not because of you. I just... I'm not... Beauty needs soul for a soulmate. 
What? Sorry, wait, what? Is that what was said? Um, the soul needs beauty for a soulmate. I'm struggling, Bono. A little bit. Um, I'm not Bono. No. Um, Spent most of my life trying to look like him, but I'm not, I am not, in fact, Bono. Um, I think the, the lyric that does stand out for me, or the idea that stands out, and this is the centre of the song for me, is um, talking about um, losing love to find romance. So I think the idea there is there is a long-term relationship that um, is being discussed here, and that's so much more important than anything that can come kind of fleetingly. And I think Bono's referring to... I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be about him and Ali, but I think it's about that idea of there's things that you gain from a monogamous relationship and things that are lost. And I think that's it's a nice thing to write a song about, and it comes across well. Edge has the middle section, which is really nice, where he's, he's almost got a Bee Gees kind of tone. Do you, do you mean, do you find that, you know... Uh, I've, never, I've, Divine. I've never thought BG, uh, Bee Gees when I've listened to this track. It goes really high. It's not a go-to track, though, is it? It's it's um, it's the but it's not great. I can see you know myself reclining on a uh, an autumn evening, the fire on, a glass of wine, and you know this song would suit that kind of setting. But we're a million miles away from Vertigo and Love and Peace, and when we've been being told this was the big scintillating return to the guitar band, yeah. Yeah, it's not great. Oh, crumbs. The crumbs from your table. Johnny, thoughts? I like this song. This is a big guitar sound from Edge, which I'm always a fan of. It sounds like he's using a lot of um, semi-acoustics on this album, which I quite like. Um, it gives a different kind of tone. That's one for the guitar nerds, I suppose. This is a song that... Bono and Edge wrote, I think, actually the only song that they successfully wrote whilst very, very drunk. Um, they wrote it in a drinking session that carried on all the way through the night, chugging away at some acoustic guitars, but it actually survived that process and made it onto the album. And, you know, that's great because it's such a good song. They're beginning song. to annoy me now that they can write songs like this while while drunk. Well, not very often, apparently. I think this was uh, the one time that that particular lightning struck. Um, and it's a song that is indignant it's angry at institutions that would seem to be charitable and would preach a message of giving and love but when it comes down to brass tacks and when it comes down to hard cash they won't actually give you money to actually make improvements in the world so bono talks about visiting um certain types of uh fundamentalist and catholic churches in america lots of different types of churches and asking for money and saying that it was like getting blood from a stone, basically. So when you get to that line about, you know, signs and wonders, the thing that's needed is something other. It's actually just money or the things that can be bought with money and infrastructure, like proper medicine, like proper water, that kind of thing. So it's an important song and it sounds good. Tyler, what do you think? Uh, stupid name for really? a track. Why do people it. hate the name of this song so much? Crumbs. I have no problem with crumbs. Name another track that has the word crumbs in it. I bet there were probably quite a few. Crumbs in... as a word belongs in nursery rhymes. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just crumbs from your table. It just irritates me. Really, it really bugs me. It's a good it's a good song, but I, when I think of it, I just think of a table with crumbs on it and. It's just a disappointing image because there's no bread on the table. It's just there's just crumbs and 
I just I just don't like the title because it puts that um, awful yeah. image in, in in my head. Um, but it it is a good song, and um, I flagged up pretty much everything you said about it. Um, oh, sorry. No, no, flag as as a good thing. Um, it's another Sonic, interesting Sonic experience. So, what would you call it instead of crumbs from your table? Like the side cuts from your table. Um, the, the rind no, from your table. Like, if that's the if that's the chorus, then that's fine. But like, you don't have to call a song something from the chorus. You know, that something other would be a, a, an interesting title. Yeah, fair enough. I've never had a problem with that, but that's probably just because signs I... and wonders would be a good name. Yeah, again, I think that's fine. I just don't have a problem with crumbs. I like crumbs. It's just, I, I think they're trying to be different, and that that bothers me. <laughs> Here we go with One Step Closer. Um, I completely forgot about this song before re-listening for the, for, for this this podcast. Mm. Um, Very forgettable, that's why. But because of that, I, I didn't... I didn't feel bad about properly re- researching this and finding out what it was about. A lot of times we like to talk about our own reaction to it. Um, but this song came, or the idea from this song came from a conversation Bono was having with Noel Gallagher of Oasis when Bono's father was dying. Um, and Bono asked Noel, do you think he believes in God? To which Noel replied, uh, well, he's one step closer to knowing. Which is, I think Noel is everybody's favourite Gallagher brother. Certainly mine. Um, and it, as he is mine, and and that's quite a deep thought. And I never, I never think of Oasis as being that deep or you know that that well thought out. But that's that's quite and to say to somebody as well. Yeah, I think it is. It's it's not a um, a shooting down of that idea, and it's not a an empty confirmation of it. And it, I think to be honest, that is only something that Noel Gallagher could say. It's very typical of him. And I think that's a, that's a really good idea and an interesting thought um, for a song. The problem is, there's not really a song here. I think this is one of the most... It's not even bad, it's just forgettable. It's yeah. it's so forgettable. It's very quiet, very... Um, and and there's, there's a lot of big, bombastic songs, um, or at least sonically interesting songs on this album, uh, so it doesn't stand out. Um, but it is nice, it's nice. But it's nice, maybe as elevator music, but I think I might have fallen asleep by the time the elevator got to whatever floor I was going to. <laughs> um, speaking of sleep, Adam Adam Clayton is sleepwalking through this song, honestly. Um, well, he's probably under strict instructions from Edge and Bono, isn't he? Well, maybe if the instructions. Were... And I don't think Adam's alone in the opinion very often. Well, I think this album, he is, he is, he's got some good moments, uh, bass yeah, great wise. moments, great moments. Um, I think it's just that the song is so quiet, and I don't have a problem with quiet U2 songs at all. It's just there's not really a hook here. Um, I'd be happy with a song called One Step Closer, and that was part of the chorus, but considering the songs that were cut from this album, and I'm not, I almost got very annoyed then because I thought of one song that was cut from this album that should be on here. Why is this on the album? I guess I suppose it's because it's tied up with... Um, Bob and this album was, you know, one of the trial names for this was how to dismantle an atomic Bob rather than Bob. Yeah, um, it doesn't mean it should be. On it's the interesting album, you bring that up actually because I remember being told that in high school, like fourteen, fifteen, around the time this album had come out, and a friend of mine uh, was telling me that 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 and and 
I've never been able to decide if that's a better or worse title. He was of the opinion that it was a much better title. But then he, he was... He is in Bono. No, um, as in my friend at high school. Oh, right, okay. Uh, but he was also a fan of Green Day. Um, so... Hey, at that time, it was good to be a fan of Green Day. No, it wasn't. Well, I think it was. But this isn't uh, Review Green Day. <laughs> review Day. Review Day, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, so what do you think is a better title? I, I think I've always thought Bomb. But if they wanted to do Bob, then I would have done Bomb with the M in um, brackets. In brackets. That would be interesting. One for the ages, I guess. I mean, you, see, you see, I've never been able to decide which I, which I prefer. I think it would have been easier to make fun of an album called How to Dismantle an Atomic Bob. Bob. Yeah. Uh, and... And I think that that would have taken away from some of the sentimentality in that, yeah, in the album. So maybe it's a good thing that they didn't. But as a, as for what is a more interesting title, I honestly don't know. I think your brackets idea is actually quite good, and that would allow you to keep the album art, you know, with these stripes and the red and black, which are obviously associated with kind of bombs. So, uh, yeah, Tyler, why didn't they? Why didn't they consult you? They have my number. Original of the Species. This is a great song, I think. Uh, Edge begins in a really chilled out way. He's back on the piano, which is quite nice. And it just develops and opens out and blossoms like, I don't know, like a flower, I guess, is a cliche thing to say. So from being really chilled, it then becomes this amazing outpouring of Bono's voice combined with Edge's kind of barrage of glittering notes. It's it's a yeah, really, it's really great song. It's really, really good. It's really, it's a really good U two song. I mean, mm. it's quintessentially a U two song as well. It's hard to imagine somebody else performing this song. Um, but I know exactly what you're saying there about it's a U two song because I think when I listen to this track, I think why don't they use this sound all the time? But that's the point. If you use the sound all the time, it could just it could end up sounding too repetitive. To be honest, it's like Beautiful Day. You want to really limit that so it's showcased but yeah, sorry yeah. i interrupted you again. no i think it's a forgotten masterpiece actually um and it was released in a really strange way wasn't it it wasn't a promo only kind of yeah release and I, I can't remember what that was for or if it was for the red foundation i know bono kicked off the, the red foundation at that point mm. um but, but it wasn't a lead kind of single in the way that say you know vertigo or uh sometimes was no but i really wanted it to get a, a proper release so that we could have remixes alternate versions acoustic versions like they were so generous with in in this uh time period mm. um and and generally are quite generous with but um it's Bono's favorite song on the album um and I, the the bit I really like in this song is the orchestra I think it's an orchestra mm. but I, I was going to ask you is it orchest- orchestra or is it a synth well I had a look in the liner notes about that actually and um, as far as I can tell it doesn't say orchestra at least not on Wikipedia I should have returned to the actual album to be honest if I was being professional about it so I think it's just um, orchestrated synth but I know they did a really good live version with a, an orchestra and yeah. it sounds incredible but not done very often live that, that must have been like quite the production though to mm. produce that through synth I mean you, you can do amazing things with, with synth but mm. To make it sound like that and just not know which one it is, yeah. Because even if you have a violin setting on a synth, it's still 
you can still normally tell it's a synth or it's well, it's I a... think you're thinking about the keyboards we'd use at high school where it's you know the bass would be like like comparative I, I, to well I, I'm not but I'm not, I'm not I, obviously the technology YouTube would use is would well, be the top of the top of the range wouldn't it but, but I I still think that you can tell or an, a music aficionado can tell mm. uh, if you've used a synthesizer then you you know when you're listening to a synthesizer so and I'm starting to sound like Giorgio Moroder on on Daft uh, Punk <laughs> here, uh, here. I use the synthesizer, um, but yeah, back to the track. I just think it, I, I think it's a really well put together piece of music, hmm. and it's a shame they didn't release it properly. Although maybe maybe that, that's a gift. For, that's something for, just for the fans. Yeah, it's a deeper album cut, I guess. I mean, it's nice that you two can have such incredible, you know, kind of songs that aren't, you know the lead single or the lead emotional single like sometimes would be i guess off this record and so late in the in the album as well it's like it, normally when a, an album would be calming down or coming to a close you two do that somewhat unsuccessfully on some previous albums but on this one it this is just a gem to find so late in in, in the album mm. and i think there's a lot of people that listen to the first three or four tracks on album and then leave it well, especially on U2 albums, because they tend to front-load a lot, which is very annoying. I mean, All You Can't Leave Behind is a classic example, really. Um, I I think, I mean, would you agree that the reason, or one of the main reasons this is Bono's favourite song is because his vocal performance is just so good on it? Yeah, it is good. Uh, and, um, I, yeah, I think that, you know, that'll, that'll come into it, but maybe it means a lot to him. I think it's written about his his eldest daughter, or his eldest child. I'm I'm not sure which one. Well, I heard that it was written about um, Edge's one of Edge's daughters, who Bono is the godparent of. But I think it could apply to. Um, it's, to... it's certainly about ch- the you know children of the band. Yeah. Uh, and you know the first one of your kind. I think there is a, neither of us are the first child in our families, but I, I do get the sense that there is this sense of wonderment with the first child. Uh, and then the second and third children kind of they're a bit you know you're a little bit more used to them and they're a little less special so that that first child must be you know mm. I'm, I'm not criticizing that fact it's just it's just how we are as as humans you know the first album you buy and really love yeah is is a really can be a really powerful experience well i hope the other uh siblings don't feel too annoyed about that and they've not got you know songs or anything no but it's kind of fitting because like uh all that you can't leave behind was your your first u2 album yeah and how to dismantle an atomic bomb was my first U2 album. So, kind of regardless of how they are and and how they've done critically or commercially, um, and how they've weathered in time, it's it's pretty much regardless because to us they'll always be special to us because they were the first U2 albums while we were fans. Yeah, I think that's interesting, and it's nice to have a song on the album that is more about kind of purity and innocence amid all the kind of the, the grime and the, you know, the sort of war-torn background to this whole album. Um, I, I think this is an album where Bono does self-criticism really well. And as we'll see on next week's episode, there are moments where I think Bono is aware of the kind of criticism that he's coming under and feels a need to respond to it and perhaps doesn't do that the best way. But here in the line where he's saying, some people got way too much confidence, baby. And then he repeats, baby. That second baby, and I realise that I'm saying that word more than Bono tends to. It's okay, baby. Okay. Um, that second word, that iteration of that, <laughs> that word, is so broken. That's the way to do it, I believe. 
for Bono. You know, he's he's talking about himself or, you know, he's referring to himself. You know, he points to himself when he's done this song live, when he's saying some people got way too much confidence. And I think it's that recognition of the fact that he isn't, he's definitely far from perfect. And the thing that has carried the band this far is also a major site of criticism for him. And he realises that that is sometimes a problem. That's a much better way to do it than, well, better than intellectual tortoise, I think. Time for the penultimate track on How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. This is Yahweh. And this is the only song on the album that was recorded with the original producer, Chris Thomas. And I think that's really interesting because you two, especially from this point on, start messing around with a lot of different producers. And it just shows that even um, time-tested producers like Brian Eno, Danny Lanois, and Steve Lillywhite, sometimes they can't get a U2 song to sound the way it's supposed to sound, or, or at least get it to sound its best. Mm. So I like that this is on, and I think it does add a little bit of variety. For what would be the final track on the album in the US, I think I think it's a really nice little song. It's not overtly religious. Okay, it's called uh, Yahweh, but it's I think it's it's not preachy. It's just it's just a nice little uh, little song, really. Yeah, there's not a huge amount of depth there to this song, to be honest. I mean, I used to love listening to this song the first time I got the record, and some of the force of that hit me this time. I think the fact that it was relatively um, it wasn't overproduced. They didn't go over this song in a lot of different times in this particular recording. That keeps a lot of the freshness there. And it isn't a, a preachy song in any way. I think Bono gets around the whole kind of the taboo of pronouncing the name of God, Yahweh, by singing it on this record. I mean, I think he was quite happy with that and ready to be apologetic about it. But there's a subtlety here which you don't get a lot of times when um, Bono in particular likes to write about God. Um, I mean, you say subtlety, but he is sort of screaming. Yeah, he is, he is screaming Yahweh, but it, it's just a nice, calm song. It's not. Um, it feels chilled. Yeah, and and I think it's what you need at this point in the album. You can't have, well, you know, second second to last track, or last track, and you can't have a, you know, a big bombastic track like like Vertigo or something. And it's it's just got to. So weird if the if the album ended with Vertigo. Well, that's what they did on the tour. Well, they started and ended with Vertigo, yeah, didn't they? That's yeah. really annoying. They should. I'm really glad they didn't do that on the on the album. Even if it would, it would if it even if it had been a different version, I'm very glad they didn't do that. Well, that would have been mad. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely mad. But Yahweh, I think I just think it's a nice little song. Um, it's not groundbreaking. It's not going to change the world, but it's just it's just a nice little song. The main thing that I remember with this song is the closing bit of the bomb tour and we were lucky enough to get into the ellipse on that so we were right up front and kind of weird because they all approach in that kind of boy band way and stand at the front um larry is on keyboards which is very disconcerting to me i mean larry anywhere than behind a kit i i'm always sort of weirded out by i'm very happy to have him sing like dirty old town or something like that i think they just have to give him something to do sometimes well, I think it's sort of, it, there was a sort of a, a feeling that, you know, see, I can do more things than actually just hit stuff all the time. I'm not just the pretty boy of the band. I, I, I've got other talents. Mm, although he is that. Um, but I remember Yahweh being the closer and it's very stripped down, very acoustic based, apart from uh, that keyboard. And 
the bit at the end of the song, which is really jubilant, where you have the oh oh's bit. I'm, I'm not going to attempt to reproduce it as usual. Um, that bit was coming up, and I thought this is going to be brilliant. The whole of the audience are going to join in and sing the oh oh kind of bit. I thought you weren't going to reproduce it. Well, I didn't go. I didn't exactly go. You know, I didn't give it my all. <laughs> oh. Why do I give you the opportunity to do this? Right, anyway, so I expected that, but on a mass scale, you know, thousands of people joining in. Yeah. So it finally got to the stage in the song, and I put my hand in the air <laughs> and started doing that, along with Edge, who was obviously doing it because Bono was doing the other bit. And I was pretty much, I think, the only person doing that, and I felt like an absolute idiot, because I'm not a singer. You and Edge just looked at each other, shared a, yeah. shared a momentary glance. And Edge is like, thank you, thank you, one person in the, uh, in the audience. Fast Cars. This is an interesting song because it was recorded on the second to last night in the studio, very, very late on. And I think you get that real sense of weariness uh, about this. I'm sick this. of them doing this. But it not, results I'll, in great ev- songs. Every single U2 track that comes out, or, uh, sorry, every album that comes out, there's always one song that they're, that they're trying to finish late at night and they're not sure if they can get it on the album. And honestly, they've said this so many times, I'm beginning to not believe them. Well, I think they should just set the uh, the album record, like, you know, the due date of the album, just a, sort of a week in advance and say, right, we've got to be in the studio every single night. And then bang, 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 they'll just get out a great album. It'll be an album full of 40s and fast cars. And I can't think of a better album than that. Um, but I think the the weariness of this comes through really well on the song. I think this is really interesting because it's kind of like, I mean, it's, it is an alternative ending to the album i never think of this album as ending with yahweh which it does officially it's the same thing as all you can't leave behind you know i think this album finishes with fast cars and this is kind of like a flipped darker end to the album than yeah. yahweh if well, yeah just, just oh, let me come in there um because if you're one of our transatlantic uh, listeners then you may not have got this song on your version of the album uh, this is uh, a song that was released uh, on the UK and Japanese versions of the album. Um, so that's what Johnny was saying, hmm. uh, why this might be an alternative end. But for, for us, we're so in the used UK, to getting this, yeah. I mean, it's sort of almost expected, really. Um, so this is kind of an interesting, yeah, alternative feel uh, in an ending track. And I always imagine in Yahweh, Bono is sort of, you know, a bit like David Brent in that video where he does If You Don't Know Me By Now. He's sort of in white linen and walking around in you know, kind of, you know, with no shoes on. Yeah, that's the Bono I imagine in Yahweh. Bear with me, right? And this is Bono back in his kind of like leathers, you know, back in the fly kind of gear. Um, a bit worn out, but Edge is there by his side, dressed as a matador with a Spanish guitar. And it's great. It's a lot of fun. This didn't actually happen, did it? No, it didn't actually happen. It's just one of my weird U2 fantasies. That is a weird fantasy. Do you not see where I'm coming from? That Yahweh is this sort of, you know, it's I've never, upbeat. I've never thought of that. I think of, I think of like a a a Mexican town, perhaps, like you know, like um, an old, maybe you know, in, in prospecting days, like a, a, a wooden hut, and you've got this is way weirder than what I'm talking I about. I don't think it is because you got the Spanish guitar, and well, maybe it is, but basically, Red Dead Redemption. Think of that. That's what I imagine <laughs> when I when I listen to fast. Fast cars. cars, so it'd be yeah. faster carriages then, fast horse-drawn carriages. <laughs> and fast cowboys. And there wouldn't be any Xanax or anything like that. Um, I, I really like this song and I've, I've really loved it, I think, ever since I, I heard it. I remember being in high school and me and my friend Joe, 
most mornings would just sit there and go line for line. Like I'd sing one line, then he'd sing the next line. Um, or, or fast cars. Mm. I'm probably really annoyed everybody else around us, but we just we just loved that love that track and found it really fun to sing. And I think it is mm. it is a fun song. Um, it's quite a dueling song, isn't it? In the same way that yeah. until the end of the world is a duel. This is yeah, very obviously there is a call and response from Bono and Edge here. Maybe they should do more of this because it works well on Vertigo and it works really well here. Yeah, but it's it's a happy song and it brings up happy memories. Always glad to be you know reminded of, you know of, of my mate Joe, and and I, I did bring this song up to him recently and yeah. he'd completely forgotten like the lyrics to it and like couldn't do it. So like a little part of me died, but um, so you were saying my cell is ringing, no idea. And well, next time no- I see him, I'm going to give him the lyrics. Oh, okay, so we can actually remember it. Yeah, force him to learn them. Under threat of death. <laughs> okay, it's time for everybody's favourite feature. Oh, the sweetest thing! Hmm. My favourite song on this listen was Sometimes You Can't Make It On Your Own. I think the whole father-son dynamic of that song really spoke to me this time. Uh, my sweetest thing was Love and Peace. Quite surprising, but I just really, really loved it. Um and really felt what the album was about when I was listening to that that track. Would you say that that song is, quote-unquote, the heart of the album? I know we've started introducing this weird term. Well, I've introduced this weird term. Kind of like mofo, for me, is the heart of pop, and the fly is the heart of Acton Baby. Would you say that Love and Peace really sums up this album? I think that's what it's all about, yeah. And I, I, am, I think about the Vertigo tour with Bono on the drum, and I just think yeah. that's a, a, a great image. So, yeah, that's my that's my sweetest thing. Cool. Yeah, dirty day. Okay, was that was that Spanish or French or? Uh, it it pan European. Uh, pan European, I think. Okay, great. So yeah, just yeah. all the nations together in one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are one. Okay. My dirty day from this listen, and it's probably obvious from the review, is one step closer. It's just a dull song and. When I think of what was left off this album and could have been present and was discussed as being possibly included on the album before it even came out, I get very annoyed at that song because it's so dull. Uh, mine was All Because of You. Yes, that would have, that's a contender. It's pretty, pretty bad. Pretty awful. Yeah. And now, Johnny, it's that time where I have to ask you, is this an album... Or is this a flipping album? Well, I'll begin to answer that with a quote from The Edge, who said that while this album could be a bit more sonically interesting, as a collection of songs, it's our best ever. Now, what do you think of that statement? Because you're smiling. When did he say this? Uh, It's in U2 by U2, towards the end of that book. I think it might be uh, page 239. So that came out before 2010. Yeah, yeah, that album, sorry, that book finishes at that album. So there are reasons, obviously, for why Edge might be saying this. They always tend to talk up, as you would do. You would talk <laughs> up the album you just released. You'd um, be saying, oh, it's not very good, but here it is. I, 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 don't, th- I don't think it's the best. Uh, it has a gleaming quality to me because because it was my the, the first new U2 record mm. th- that came into existence while I was a U2 fan. So it's it's got a fond place in my memory. But I don't think it's the best. I do think of it as a complete album. It it's it works well as an album. 
But it's not up there with the likes of, well, for me, Pop or or, or Actung or All That You Can't Leave Behind. No. Um, my, my... So maybe it's not, it's an album, but it's not a flipping album. Okay. I mean, that's what I think overall. And I'd actually be agreeing with Larry here, who in that same book, quite soon after Edge's bit, says he doesn't think it hangs together and it seems to be missing um, some kind of emotional thread through the album. I mean, that's an approximation, but... I tend to agree with Larry there. My problem with this album, and I'm in a similar position to you, because although it wasn't my very first U2 album, it was the first after I'd become a real U2 fan and got so into them. And I I think I was expecting too much, really. And the problem was that I was reading, you know, Q magazine and various other kind of sources where Edge was talking up the fact that this would be an album that would be rocky and experimental. And... <sighs> It didn't really. It doesn't really deliver on that, really, yeah. and that's the problem for it. It's difficult. It's a difficult album. It's a difficult album for me um, because there's, there's some bittersweet memories. I mean, I was, I think I just turned fourteen when this, you know, mm. uh, this this album came out. Um, so the, there are some bittersweet memories. It's it's a darker album than all that you can't leave behind. Uh, there's a real sense of tragedy and. A real sense of learning, but struggling to move on, and you know, in in comedy, tragedy is so often paired with it. You can't have one without the other, and and I think the same can pretty much be said for this album. You know that you've got that love and peace aspect, and but you've also got that tragic aspect. You've got positivity that is um, that's the answer or the other side of the tragedy. Hmm. That's that's how you react to it. And there'd been a lot of tragedy by this point in, yeah, this, so in the it, noughties, really. It's difficult. And, and you two, I think this is the first time you two don't seem like that young band anymore. They, they, they feel older now. And, well, and they're talking about more serious things. I think they passed over into that category of um, daddishness last, last record. I don't have a problem with that either. You have to, you know, you've got to age at some point. I think Bono does uh, save this album from becoming bleak and dreary uh, by adopting personas once again. You know, songs like Vertigo, Love and Peace and, and Fast Cars. Um, it's a good album that manages to find... A, a, well, it found its place in the contemporary music scene of the time. Um, it's certainly reflective, definitely. But has it lasted? I, I don't think it has. I don't mm. think this is one of the big U2 albums. No, certainly not. It it doesn't. And it was huge at the time, which is so strange. But it, it just it was kind of a, a flash in the pan of a U two record. Yeah, although it is worth, I guess, recognizing it was so commercially successful at that time. Yeah. In in so far as an album could be at that time, in this sort of we're already moving into the post CD um, era. But, but is now. this an album that people associate with U two? Is it up there with the Joshua Tree and with all that you can't leave behind and with Acting Baby? I don't think it is. No, no, certainly not. So there we have it. That was How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. All that's left to say is thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next week when we'll be reviewing No Line on the Horizon. Are you looking forward to that one, Tyler? We'll see you next week. Okay. Bye.
Hi there, thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch, please contact us on facebook.com forward slash review 2 u or on soundcloud.com forward slash review 2 or search for the Review 2 podcast on iTunes. You can also email us at review2contact at gmail.com. Please like, comment and subscribe. Thank you.